You know, there are some people that have a very distinct walk. Some people walk with a limp because uh, of an injury or a birth defect. Some people walk in a unique way, bent over because of age. Some people are always walking fast. Some are only able to walk slow. Some walk with eyes that are focused off into the horizon, looking forward always. Some people seem to always be maybe walking forward but looking backwards. Some walk looking down, some walk with others, some walk alone, some walk in the dark, some have even tried to walk with their eyes closed, which doesn't usually end very well. There are power walkers. Uh, You've seen them. Um, They can walk faster than some of us can run. I know that firsthand. Several years ago, I ran in a 5K race and did not train for that. And I was in the back part of the group, and by the time I was halfway through the race, all of a sudden I came across a power walker, and I'm going, this is nuts. <laughs> or, you know, you're, you, you've got the power walkers who, who carry those barbells while they're walking. You've seen them. You know, pity the dog or the person that picks on them. You know, we all have a unique, distinct walk. And this morning we're going to talk about choosing how to walk in a whacked-out world. Because there are a lot of ways that we can choose to walk. I did a brief uh, word study of the word walk in scriptures this last week. And it was fascinating to see how many different ways an individual can walk. People can walk in some rather unique ways. I found this last week that we can walk with the wicked. Walk with the ungodly. Walk in stubbornness, walk in darkness, walk in evil, walk in gloom, walk in pride, walk like the blind. But on a more positive note, we can walk after the Lord. We can walk in the fear of the Lord, walk uprightly, walk with integrity, walk humbly, walk in newness of life, walk by faith, walk by the Spirit, or as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1, walk in a manner. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And because there are different ways that we can walk in this world, and even as a Christ follower, today in our scripture passage of Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 20, we're going to discover how to walk in a manner that is pleasing to God in what I would describe as a whacked out, crazy world. And so if you have a Bible, turn to Ephesians chapter 5. If you need a Bible, raise your hand and one of our ushers will loan you one. We're going to walk through the scriptures this morning. Ephesians chapter 5, as we continue in this series. Notice the very first thing that Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 1. He says, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Again, when there is a therefore, you need to ask the question, what? Why is it therefore? Well, this section of Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 20, points back to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. Look there. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. This is a direct connection to Ephesians 4, 17. And you see, Paul was stressing back in Ephesians 4, 17, when he said, that you ought not walk any longer as the Gentiles do. He was stressing the point that the Ephesian Christ followers must abandon and put off what had been their former way of life. They were no longer to walk in darkness. 
walk in selfishness, but they are now to walk in light, in newness of life. He says, I testify, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. And interesting, if you then go down to chapter 4, verse 24, Paul says to the Ephesians, he says to us, put on this new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. That's how we're to walk. And now it's in our passage before us today, Ephesians chapter 5, where Paul explains in greater detail how to walk as a Christ follower in this crazy, goofed up, whacked out world. But before he explains that, he gives us an exhortation. He gives to us a command. He begins immediately and he says, be imitators of God as beloved children. Be imitators of God. The word for imitators is a Greek word that means to mimic or to mirror God. You know, as a parent of three kids, I've learned over the years how much my kids have imitated, mirrored the things in my life, both the good and, sadly, sometimes the not so good. We all understand what it means to mimic or to mirror Remember my daughter one time was kind of annoying me and um, when she was younger. She doesn't do that any longer. But here we were sitting around the dinner table and I start saying things and she just started repeating the exact same thing that I was saying. You know, after a, a while, you know, at first it was funny, but then after a while it got to be rather annoying because she was mimicking me. Well, you know what? God wants us to mimic Him. He's never going to get annoyed by our mimicking Him in our walk in relationship with Him. And you see, Paul says to us, be imitators of God as beloved children. Paul is urging us to reflect God in our life and in our walk. And that only happens as we spend time with him, getting to know him. It was Peter and John in Acts chapter 4. You don't need to turn there, but I love this passage of Scripture. Acts chapter 4. When Peter and John were brought before the Sanhedrin, they were the religious ruling bodies of the day. Because they had healed a crippled beggar. They were brought before the Jewish authorities. And in Acts chapter 4, verse 13, it says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and common men, they were astonished. And they recognized, they recognized that they had been with Jesus. What a compliment! Here, Peter and John were being faced with uh, persecution, with accusations, but there was something about their demeanor, something about their character, something about the way in which they handled themselves in a very tough, difficult situation that the religious leaders said, you know what? They were reflecting. They were mirroring the character, the conduct, demeanor that they had seen or heard about in this person named Jesus. The question you this morning is would others be able to say the same of you as a child of his would others say that your life reflects or mirrors jesus christ are you walking as jesus christ walks or does it mimic and reflect the world and all that it represents because if we claim to be as paul says beloved children of his and having put on the new self of God's righteousness, then there is a weighty implication placed upon us as to how we live in this world. Now, in order to be an imitator of God in your relationship with Him or your relationships with other people, your thought life, your private life, your leisure, your business, and reflect His character, 
and conduct and everything, you have to know what it looks like to walk like Jesus. And my prayer is that today we will let the Holy Spirit do His intended work in this place in each one of our hearts, doing the kind of necessary surgery that needs to be done to take out the stuff, the junk, the garbage that's there so that it won't continue to grow and infect and ultimately destroy us. So we want the Holy Spirit to have freedom here in this place this morning. And so what we're going to look at here are three ways to walk in a manner worthy as a child of His. Because that's the admonition that was given to us. Walk in a way that's worthy of the calling. Walk as beloved children. But what does that mean? What does that look like? Well, first, you should choose to walk in love. Choose to walk in love. Notice verses 2 through 7. Paul writes there, he says, And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Walk in love. Walk in love. It was Tina Turner, the musical icon, that asked that unique musical question, what's love got to do with it? What's love got to do with it? And so the question is, what does love have to do with our daily lives? When in verse 2 it says we are to walk in love, that means love is supposed to be at the core of everything we do. It is supposed to permeate all of our existence, characterize our lives from start to finish. The problem is we often don't understand what biblical love is. We think of love as some sort of sappy emotion or some sort of warm, fuzzy feeling. And apparently that was a problem with the Ephesian Christians as well. They must have had trouble understanding what love really was because Paul gave them an example. He said they were to love as Jesus Christ loved them. And how much was that? Well, you may have seen the poster of a little boy with his arms stretched wide open. And at the bottom it says, I love you this much. You see, friends, that's what Jesus did. He said, I love you this much as he stretched out his arms on the cross of Calvary and died for you. I love you this much, he said. That's love. That's love. That's the kind of love that Paul says we're to walk in. That's the kind of love, he says, is supposed to characterize our lives and the way we live in relation to others in this world. And that's the kind of love that is self-sacrificing love. It's a self-sacrificing love that places the needs of other people above your own. Jesus put our needs above His own by willingly giving Himself on a cross. You see, this biblical love offers itself in service to others, as Paul says, as a sweet-smelling offering. It's willing to serve others no matter the personal cost. Whether they deserve it or not, whether they appreciate it, or not. That's how we're to love, sacrificially, unconditionally. 
It's interesting. If you, if you go to the book of Revelation and John's letter to the seven churches, as he writes to the church at Ephesus, what's the one thing that God had against this church in Ephesus? Remember? He said, this one thing I have against you, you have lost, forgotten your first love. You see, friends, that type of unconditional self-sacrificing love is set in contrast to a world in which we live that is self-serving, self-seeking, self-centered, and that's why it's so whacked out and at times difficult to live in as followers of Jesus Christ. And so Paul now gives us instructions on how to live a life of love and reflect or mimic the holiness and the purity of Christ in our walk through this world. Three things about walking in love. The first way that you must walk in love is to hold to a high standard of personal purity. It's the first way in which you must walk in love. Hold to a high standard of personal purity. Look at verse 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. What Paul is saying here is that sexual impurity is incompatible with a walk with Jesus Christ because it is the defiling of the human body. Now, if you lived in Ephesus at the time that Paul was writing this letter, you would have been absolutely horrified. You think things are sexually loose in our society? I don't think it is even in comparison. In Ephesus, there was a temple of worship, not of God-honoring worship, but of pagan worship where male and female prostitutes were available for a worship experience. And so Paul is speaking into the culture at that time by these very strong words, words that are very appropriate for our society and our world today, for our community today. Paul's saying sexual impurity, sexual immorality is incompatible with a walk with Jesus Christ because it is a defiling of what God has designed. Notice the terms that Paul uses to define what we would call sexual impurity. He uses the term immorality. This term simply refers to any kind of sexual misbehavior. Then he uses the word impurity. And that refers to anything that is rotten, filthy, obscene. Then Paul uses the word covetousness, which we might usually think refers to greed about money. But here it refers to greed for another person's body desiring it as an object of personal pleasure without regard for the other person. That's not God-honoring love. That's selfishness. And perhaps a better translation of this phrase would be an obsession or a lust for someone or something for one's own personal gratification. Now, all these terms, of course, refer to sex outside of marriage. The Bible reveals the fact that sexual desire, okay, Sexual desires are God-given. They are things that God engineered. God designed us that way. The fact that our sexual drives are among the most powerful in human life is God's idea and not ours. He's made us that way. Therefore, He has a purpose and a design for those desires and the fulfillment of those desires. And the purpose for sex and the fulfillment of those desires is within the marriage relationship. Anything outside of the marriage relationship is an abomination. It is wrong. It is sinful. It is contrary to God's word and God's will. The purpose for sex and the fulfillment of those desires is within that unique marriage bond and relationship. Period. 
No experimentation in advance of marriage. It's not allowed. It's inappropriate as God's child, as a follower of His. Sex and the sexual desire is a lot like a river. You know, when the waters are contained within the banks of the river, it's a beautiful thing to be enjoyed and appreciated. But when the waters of the river flood out of control and over the banks, it creates chaos, destruction, havoc, much like what the Illinois River is doing today. You see, when we attempt to meet God-designed desires outside of His will and His purposes, especially the sexual desire, it leads to chaos, it leads to hurt and personal destruction. And that's why we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 18 through 20, where Paul says to the Corinthian church, to the followers of Jesus Christ, he says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, he says. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Well, the second way in which you must walk in love is to hold to a high standard of purity in your speech. Not only hold to a high standard of personal purity in your life and in your relationships, but also here in your speech. Notice verse 4. Paul says, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which is out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Not only is sexual carelessness incompatible with the Christian faith, but even careless, inappropriate talk about sexual matters is wrong and incompatible as a Christ follower. Filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking that Paul refers to here all relate to sexually inappropriate conversations, all of which are harmful and out of place for you personally and for others because what it does is it distorts, it demeans, it degrades what God has designed as something incredibly beautiful and wonderful to be appreciated but enjoyed in the relationship of marriage. That's why we're to replace this type of talk with words and conversations about goodness and blessings of God. We are to put off impure speech with God-honoring speech, with speech that lifts up, that encourages, that glorifies, that is God-honoring speech and talk. Well, let me share here the third way that you must walk in love. You must walk in love by holding to a high standard of purity in your relationships. Not only holding to a high standard of personal purity, not only holding to a high standard of purity in your speech, but also purity in your relationships. Notice what he says in verses 5 to 7. He says, for you may be sure of this. You may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Paul puts it rather bluntly. He says, anyone who practices, who has a lifestyle of sexual impurity, he says, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. In other words, 
sexual immorality, <clears throat> sexual looseness, is incompatible with the Christian faith. Because persistence in that type of a lifestyle reveals an unregenerate heart. Notice how Paul reinforces those words, that statement. Verse 5, he says, be sure of this. And then in verse 6, he says, let no one deceive you with empty words. Or words that don't carry truth. You cannot be a genuine Christ follower and knowingly, deliberately have a lifestyle of sexual impurity. The one cancels out the other. Now, let me also go on to say, I do know that a Christ follower can and does do things that are immoral and sexually wrong. God knows that. I'm sure there are some sitting here today kind of going, wow. I didn't know it was that serious. But you know, friends, it is that serious. You know, the record is all too evident. Even in the Scriptures, we have the account of King David, who after years as a believer, described as a man after God's own heart, fell into the sin of adultery and took another man's wife. We have other accounts of, of this in Scripture, and there are plenty of modern examples. How often in the Christian community has someone some prominent pastor or Christian leader given into temptation has fallen into sexual sin. It happens. But the point the apostle is making is that no professed Christian can do this repeatedly, certainly not defiantly or shamelessly, and really be a follower of his. The genuine follower of Christ, if he does fall into this kind of sin, will abhor himself, will loathe his sin, and will repent and turn back and forsake it. The person who defends their sin and who justifies and excuses it or even glories in that sin as some do as a mark of their personal liberty or freedom is in the light of the statement that the Apostle Paul is making is not a Christian, is not genuinely, truly a follower of Jesus Christ in spite of all of their words of profession of faith in Jesus. You see, friends, these are not my words. These are God's words. And they're serious and weighty things. Notice also what Paul says about those who live in ungodly relationships. Verse 6. He says, The wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. The term the wrath of God is often misunderstood. And what I mean by that is almost invariably people think of terms of, of lightning bolts from heaven, sudden catastrophes, or great judgment that is to happen in the future. But that's not what's in view here. If we were to go back to Romans chapter 1 and look at the entire first chapter of Romans, but in particular Romans chapter 1 verse 18, it says there that the wrath of God is going on right now. It says there, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And so what, what is God's wrath? Well, the Apostle Paul goes on to make clear in the first chapter of Romans, it is simply God saying, All right, folks, if you want to have it your way, go ahead and have it your way. 
And what God has done in Romans chapter 1, as it's described for us, is He has given humanity up to their own out-of-control passions and lust. And God is refusing to exercise a gracious restraint of humanity's evil. And therefore, evil is just rampant and out of control. That's the wrath that Paul is talking about here. In other words, it is the inevitable effect of moral wrongs that we all know that spiral out of control by those who indulge in them and they become spiritually, emotionally, physically, relationally, and sexually ruined, disgraced, and sick. That's the wrath of God today upon those who live this kind of a life. That's why we're instructed to not associate with them. Paul says, Now, let's be careful here because Paul is not saying that we completely separate ourselves from these people because how else are folks who live in such an ungodly fashion going to hear and see the truth of Jesus in us except we engage them and the culture in which we live and they live? We have a responsibility to be light in the midst of darkness. He means that we shouldn't become partners with them. When he says, do not associate, he's talking about a partnership, a relationship. Don't become partners with them in their evil. It's one thing to be a shining light to the unsaved. It's another thing to be indistinguishable from them. That's why Paul in this next section of Scripture explains what it means for you to walk in the light in this whacked out world. He's talking, first of all, about how we should walk in love. And we walk in love based upon holding a high standard of personal purity. Purity in our own bodies, purity in our speech, purity in our relationships. But he goes on, he now talks about how we should walk in light in this world. Look at verses 8 through 14. Paul writes, he says, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, wake up, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. In the Bible, righteousness and goodness... And even the very nature of God are characterized by light. And the nature of sin and the devil is characterized by darkness. That's why in John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life, he says. And then we read in 1 John chapter 5, verses 5 through 7, it says, God is light. In him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. By nature, we were once owned and walked in darkness. But now we are owned and should walk in light. So what does it mean to walk in the light? Two things in particular. Notice verse 10. The Scripture says that you should discern what is pleasing to the Lord. What does it mean to walk in the light? It means, first of all, to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Walking in the light means knowing and understanding what God's expectations are upon your life. And that can only happen as you study and know His Word. 
Psalm 119, verse 105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. You need to find out before you can live out those expectations. Walking in the light is meant to be both an inner renewal and an outward change of habit and lifestyle. You know, as you grow in faith and maturity, you'll begin to gradually, progressively understand and discern how to live in the light that God calls us to. The light of how to live becomes brighter and brighter with more and more clarity as you grow in Him. And once you begin to know how to live in the light of God's will, you will secondly, notice verse 11, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead, he says, expose them. I'm sure you realize that fruit can't grow in darkness. It wasn't designed that way. Nor can light and darkness coexist. You can't have one foot in the evil things of the world and have the other foot in the things of God. You're either a participant with them or you are to expose the unfruitful works of darkness which are designed to destroy, ruin, and create unhappiness and misery in the lives of people. God's called us to an incredibly high standard to walk in love, to walk in light. As light, we are to expose what is in the darkness and expose it for what it is. Verse 13. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. We've all, I think, had the experience, although none of us really likes to talk about it. Maybe we get up late at night, the lights are off, we walk in the kitchen, flip on the light, and all of a sudden we see these little bugs just scatter. I mean, light exposes what's really hidden there. It's how we're to live our lives, exposing the evil that's there. The church And Christ's followers need to be actively standing against sin and lovingly speaking out for what is true and right. Notice the emphasis. Lovingly, but very directly speaking out for what is true and what is right. We've all seen individuals who are speaking the truth, but they speak it in such caustic, ungodly, unloving ways point here that Paul is making is that we should speak into the darkness by revealing it with the truth, but doing in a Christ-honoring, God-honoring, loving fashion. That was Paul's urgent call to the Ephesian believers, and it is to us. As he says in there, wake up and walk in the light because the days are evil, he says. Christ is coming back, and there are people that are living in darkness and need to know the love, the mercy, the forgiveness, and the grace of Jesus Christ in such a world that is so messed up, so whacked, so ungodly. Paul's calling us to this kind of a walk. And for us to be doing the kind of kingdom work that God has called Harvest Bible Chapel Peoria to requires that we must choose to walk in wisdom. It requires wisdom. It's the third way in which we walk. We walk in love, we walk in light, and we walk in wisdom. Notice verses 15 through 20. Paul goes on in this passage. He says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but wise. How? Well, making the best use of time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everyone to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The point here is not so much where you walk, 
I mean, that's a part of it. But the point I think that Paul is making here is, is not so much where you walk, and that is important, but it's more of how you walk. Where you walk is a relatively easy thing. But how you walk and how you apply the principles of God's Word in the various situations of life is where the wisdom is required. My son Drew just got his driver's permit. I mean, he's a good driver. I mean, he really is. He's got his permit. He's learned a valuable lesson because, I don't know, a year or two ago he ran a tractor in the side of a barn. So he understands the seriousness of, of large metal mechanical objects. My son got his, his driver's permit. And he's had no problem driving to church. You know, we've traveled the roads many times from our house to Embassy Suites. His challenge was not where to drive, but how to drive. That was the constant reoccurring challenge that he had, not just as a new driver, but how to relate the principles of good driving to every challenging situation along the road, how to go over the railroad tracks, how to take this turn, where to stop, how to stop, all of those things. And that's really true of all of us. And as we're walking through life in a wise way, it requires our awareness of time, direction, and influence. Those things, those three things. Notice verse 16. Walking wisely is an understanding of the time. He says in verse 16, making best use of the time because he says the days are evil. The days are evil. A wise person walking through life has a heightened awareness of time and how limited and precious it is because once time is gone, it can never get back. You can lose money and you can earn it back. You can lose a job and you can find another job. But you have time taken away from you, and it's gone, never to be returned. And Paul is saying, redeem the times, use the times wisely, recognize the times in which we live, and respond accordingly to that. And then in verse 17, we're told, understand what the will of the Lord is. This has to do with direction. It means to be aware of what God wants from you in every situation. Most people understand this phrase in terms of guidance. And although God is about leading and guiding us, I believe He is more interested in who you are in getting there. What you are in every situation, that's what's most important here. How do you live your life at home, in business, at work, at school, in relationship to friends you run with, and your social life? What is it that God wants from you in every one of these life situations? Looking back to verse 10, Paul says, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. The life that pleases God is a life that believes what He says and acts on it. Looking beyond the immediate to the eternal, looking beyond the visible to the invisible, and walking in love, light, and wisdom. That's the call. And then we understand lastly in verse 18 about influence. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, he says. Now, getting drunk with wine was associated with with the old way of life. And its selfish desires, which has already been condemned. Paul wrote these words in order to deliberately contrast drunkenness with the infilling of the Holy Spirit in the same way that he contrasted those in darkness with those living in light. The underlying issue here in verse 18 goes deeper than whether or not to drink. 
The important concern is what or who is going to be in control of your life. What is controlling your life? Either the Holy Spirit is, or something else is controlling your life. The word debauchery here means a reckless, out-of-control abandonment. The point is, there are a lot of intoxicating things in this world. And if they are not God-honoring things that become an intoxication to you, that could be a variety of things, alcohol being one of those, relationships, things, could also be that, where you become reckless and out of control because of that influence in your life, that's not a God-honoring walk, nor is it a walk in wisdom. And we can't have room for those things in our lives because we should be so filled with the Holy Spirit. We're baptized. When we come into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, we are baptized by the Spirit, into the Spirit. But throughout life and our walk with Jesus Christ, we are going to experience multiple fillings. That's why he said, and be filled with the Holy Spirit. You see, friends, your life and walk with Jesus is to be different from the world. What does your life, what does your life and walk look like this morning? If someone from the outside were to look at the way that you are living, the way in which you manage things at home, the way in which you live at work, the way in which you live in social settings, the way in which you live when you are by yourself, if somebody were to have a window into your life, how would they assess your walk? Are you walking in love? Are you walking in wisdom? Are you walking in light? Or are you walking in darkness? The truth is that if all of us put our lives side by side with Jesus Christ, we all fall way short. I know I do. But you know what? The hope that we have is that God is transforming us more and more into the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. Or at least that's His goal. The question is, have you been letting Him? Are there some things, sins that need to be offloaded, that need to be confessed and forsaken? You know, when Tim first came to me and said, hey, Ken, I'd like to speak on this passage. I'm starting to read through this. I'm going, whoa. I'm glad I had this passage because what it has done for me is it made me once again aware of the high standard, the calling that God has placed upon me in every area of my life and every area of your life as well. And there may have been something in God's Word, not so much my words, but in God's Word this morning that has maybe pricked your heart. And as we said on the outset, that we want the Holy Spirit to have the kind of freedom here in this place to do His work in each one of our lives. Because we've all seen the devastating effect of living in darkness and how it ruins and destroys lives. That's the enemy's intent. You have an enemy out there who wants to ruin your life. And if he can get you to begin to compromise a little bit, to just give in a little bit, to say, oh, that's really not what God meant, then he is going to win a victory and your life is ultimately going to be ruined and destroyed. There was a Haitian pastor who told his congregation about a man who tried to sell his house for $2,000, which, of course, in Haiti isn't a whole lot. 
Well, the prospective buyer couldn't afford the house at that price, and so after haggling with the owner, the owner decided to let the house go for just $1,000 with one stipulation. The owner would retain ownership of a small nail, one nail that protruded from just over the door. The buyer took possession of the house. After several years, the original owner really wanted the house back. The new owner refused to sell. The old owner then found a carcass of a dead animal and hung it from the single nail that was still his that was at the house. And finally, the stench was so bad that it rendered the house uninhabitable and the residents were forced to leave and sell it back. And the Haitian pastor told his congregation, he concluded, he said, if we leave the devil with even one small peg in our lives, he will return to hang his rotten garbage on it, making it unfit for Christ's habitation. What is the peg that's in your life that you have not had removed and Satan has returned over and over and over again to hang this dead, smelly, stinking carcass and because that is there, you haven't been able to go forward in your walk and your relationship with Jesus Christ. The worship team is going to come now and they're going to sing a closing song. And the first words of that song are, is it takes time that it's time to make a change and to turn my life around. It is time to make a change and turn my life around. I want to challenge you this morning that as we sing this last song, and there was a lot of stuff in these 20, 21 verses here in Ephesians chapter 5, that there might be something there that you just need to Say, you know what? Enough is enough. The peg needs to be pulled out. The nail needs to be extracted so that the enemy isn't coming back to hang his dead stuff on it. And if there is something that you need to offload, that while we sing this last song, if you just want to come forward, Tim and I are here. We'd love to pray with you. We don't want to make a big deal of it. But there's something very real, therapeutic about putting a stake in the ground that says, I am committing to this, or I'm giving this up, or I'm moving forward beyond this. We would love to be able to pray with you to just say, with you, enough is enough. If that's you this morning, we'd love to have you just come up. We'd love to pray with you. And then you could just simply go right back and sit down. But you're putting a stake in the ground this morning saying, I want to walk in a way that's worthy of the calling upon my heart in my life as a follower of Jesus Christ.